Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, I'm Patrick Babirowski, and this is Chronolab, a podcast about the practical uses of history in business, tech, and beyond. I talk to historians, to company leaders, consultants, and researchers. I'm learning how thinking about change over time can create value for organizations, and I want to know how history and historical training can make an impact on the world beyond the university walls. History is really fascinating, but can it be practical? Can it be actionable? How does historical thinking fit into the 21st century marketplace? Join me to find out. Hi, Tracy. Thanks so much for joining me on Chronolab today. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start by summarizing your career trajectory very quickly, if that's okay. You've earned both your BA in history from UC Berkeley and an MA in public history from California State at Sacramento. And then you moved into corporate history. You started AirTouch, from what I understand, then you worked at AAA, and then the iconic company Levi-Strauss, where you've worked for nine years or so. So I have questions. The very basic one, why did you do a BA and MA in history in the first place? Well, I love history, and I was one of those high school students who um, who fell in love with history during my AP history class. Probably also, I had a great teacher as well, but I was drawn uh, drawn especially to stories. And if I if I go back uh, on a more personal note, um, my my mother who. Uh, immigrated, and, and I immigrated with her and my sister from, uh, from New Zealand to the United States, I recall her usually around the Sunday dinner table telling us stories mm-hmm. about growing up on the farm in the north part of the, uh, of the, the island in, New, in the North Island in New Zealand. And mm-hmm. uh, hearing stories like that always drew me in, and it's part of the reason I love history and went for it. And and I have to say, I, I spent a, a short amount of time in law school thinking that maybe that's what I wanted to do. I didn't last too long there. I missed history too much. <laughs> Interesting. A uh, love of stories. So I guess that answers my other question, which is what you enjoyed the most about studying history more formally, right? Mm-hmm. I, or, unless there was another element to it. That's it. The stories in particular, I loved. I loved, uh, I, I loved those and have always been drawn, drawn to them. Mm-hmm. So you went from academic history to corporate history. How did you end up pursuing a career in corporate history? How did you know that this <laughs> domain even existed, if I, if I may ask? Yeah, well, I didn't initially. And this is one of the things that you do uh, when, you, when you sign up for uh, professional organizations. You go, you see people speak uh, and, and find out what they do. So I was getting my master's. I went to a conference. It may have been a public history conference. And I, I saw the archivist and the woman that had been that had been coaxed from Harvard. She was on the East Coast, Harvard, and she was brought to the West Coast to set up an archives for Hewlett Packard. Her mm-hmm. name was Karen Lewis, and uh, I heard her speak, and it was like, I want to do that. <laughs> so, so that must have been an interesting person saying interesting things, uh, basically. She was, yeah. and she said it, it. It was for me. It was she made it compelling because she took her academic background, applied it to her setting and made herself incredibly relevant. 
at mm-hmm. at her business, which is something I uh, I was attuned to and and I've had to do myself. But yeah, she did a great right. job of it. So I, I tracked back a little bit your your academic back, background, and I um, ran into your MA thesis on the nineteen forty four munitions explosion in Port Chicago, mm-hmm. and how it inspired African Americans to mutiny against racial inequality. And the version I read, I don't know if that's the version that you prepared originally, but it was in a National Park Service magazine called um, titled uh, Common Ground. I really enjoyed reading it. I learned a lot and it's beautifully published and includes a visual narrative. I was wondering, you know, how was this format different or the same from your original thesis? And was your kind of preparation of this particular version already an intentional step forward, uh, you know, along... on that bridge to to something else, which is corporate history? Well, thanks, first of all, for looking into (laughs) what what I did. Somebody somebody has looked looked into what I did back in my my master's days. Uh, Yeah, I did uh, my master's thesis on the explosion at Port Chicago, which is in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's the... uh, considered the largest home front disaster uh, during World War II. There were 320 people that were killed, and it is located not far from where I live. And I, uh, I was interested in, in doing the, the research to that. This kind of came around um, out of uh, some work that I did as a volunteer for the National Park Service. And to answer your question, how was the article that you read different from my thesis, um, it, it was just a very small bit of my thesis. So what I did for mm-hmm. the, what I did for the, for the master's thesis, it was an oral history project. So remember, I said stories were so important <laughs> to me, mm-hmm. right. uh, and and the people. Uh, it's another example of it. So I had been volunteering at the national for the National Park Service at the Eugene O'Neill National uh, Memorial Site, uh, which is also here in the San Francisco Bay Area, the Nobel Prize-winning playwright. And they received the stewardship of this new national park, national memorial, the Port Chicago National Memorial. And so I was there with them when they when that news came out and they were starting the work on it and uh, volunteered to help out with that and uh, to interview some of the survivors of the explosion who were by then um, men older men who uh, many of them who were passing away and we wanted to capture the history uh, from those who had lived through it uh, who had been uh, designated as as mutineers uh, because they refused to return to work loading ships with munitions and the the article in common ground I just took some of the snippets from the very lengthy mm-hmm. oral histories that I took. And then we mm-hmm. uh, also took photos uh, from government photos of the explosion and the surrounding mm-hmm. area. So it was a visual. Uh, I think you're, you're right. A visual as much as, as the, uh, the content, the written content. And that was part of your already strategy to communicate some of the more maybe esoteric content, your, your research project to a broader audience, I imagine, right? Correct. A seeing images of the explosion i think just being able to look at the um at the impact of the explosion mm. uh rather than describing it you just have to look right. at a picture and you can you yeah. can get that yeah. uh right away so yeah that was a nice way to uh to share uh what i had worked on to a broader audience could you talk a little bit about your interactions with the people at the f- first corporate job that you landed, which was at AirTouch, later mm-hmm. Verizon? How did you articulate your value coming from an MA program? Um, or was it 
obvious to everyone what you had to offer. Yeah, we were lucky, and this is often true for a lot of businesses. I was lucky that I had leadership support. So mm -hmm. they they had, before they would even hire, they had to make a case for it. So being mm -hmm. hired, I didn't have to make that case, but once I got there, I had to demonstrate it. Uh, the mm -hmm. CEO at the time uh, of AirTouch Communications, which uh, had th this was a company that launched cellular service at the Los Angeles Olympics in 1984. Uh, they had he had a sense that uh, cellular communications would change the world, <laughs> which they did. At the time, they were a paging and uh, cellular communications company, and he had a sense that it was going to be an important technology in the future, and that was the reason that he hired someone to help preserve that history. Interesting. Yeah. So th this this happens. This is get done by people who have a, a kind of a vision and are able to look into the future, and then turn yeah. around and hire a historian. I, I think that's right. They have a sense of what's important. They also consider it their legacy. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they they want to make sure that it's it's preserved. So uh, I have found that in uh, all of my work experiences, having advocates at the top in leadership at a mm -hmm. business is super important. Right. Interesting. So now I have questions about your present work because you, you've, you've been working at Levi's, of course, and uh, we all know what Levi's is. So I don't have to introduce the company. <laughs> Everyone has a pair of Levi's. And I read on Wikipedia, uh, which we all know is always true, that even Einstein <laughs> had a Levi's jacket. Maybe, maybe you can corroborate this. But... I wonder, is there anything important about the company that people usually don't know? Yeah. Well, first, yes, Einstein did own a Levi Strauss and Company jacket. And the reason I know that is because I was lucky enough to be uh, at the auction in London and to uh -huh. bid on the jacket. <laughs> and we we were the um, lucky um, the lucky, uh, the successful uh, bidder. In fact, I'm sitting at my desk, and in front of me is the large case where, where we keep we keep the jacket. There's, I, I will tell you, and then I'll answer the rest of the question. But the Einstein jacket is unique because, uh, well, one, uh, Albert Einstein purchased it when he immigrated to the United States in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. um, he he bought. He famously said that he only needed one coat. Uh, and, and this was the coat that he wore frequently. He wore it so frequently, he was often photographed in it. There are many photographs of him wearing it. And cool. he's featured on the cover of Time magazine wearing it. And, of wow. course, I had to go buy that magazine, so we had it in our collection. And uh, one of the features of the jacket is it still has the scent of the pipe smoke. That wow. Al Albert, Albert was known to, to smoke a pipe. And we have the jacket in a plexiglass case <laughs> because I was told by a conservator that uh, we would eventually lose, the scent would, would be lost if it was in uh, a oh, case where crazy. things, in, in a box where things could be absorbed. But yeah, uh -huh. so good question to start. <laughs> now you asked anything significant about uh, the company that maybe people aren't aware of. Uh, first, the company, Levi Strauss and Company, was established, it was born during the gold rush, California gold rush, 1853. So this uh, this year, 2023, the company is 170 years mm -hmm. old. Pretty mm -hmm. unusual for an American company, sure. an American apparel brand. The second thing I'll tell you is that it started in the American West and uh, at, at one point uh, in the 1970s was uh, the largest apparel company in the world. 
it, that that will give you a sense for how much it grew. Now today we aren't the largest, but we're one of the largest, and our products are sold in 110 uh, countries worldwide. But uh, but maybe that will be a surprise or not to people. And then uh, the last thing I'll I'll share that people don't often know is that along with being uh, an iconic denim brand and an American uh, favorite brand, uh, Levi Strauss and Company launched Dockers, uh, those khaki pants, in 1986, and the brand is credited for having created business casual wear. Uh, So you may or may not know that. Yeah. So there's a contribution to fashion history. uh, (laughs) How would you describe your main responsibilities? Well, they are varied. I'll start by saying that. In short, they are varied. And it's one of the things that I love about my work. Every day is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. But I am uh, I do a lot of things that that historians do generally. I do a lot of research. I do a lot of writing. Uh, not all historians, uh, some will do as much public work or work with the media um, mm-hmm. like I do. So I'm the media spokesperson for Heritage. In fact, just before... Uh, speaking with you, I was answering some questions by um, a journalist in New York, <laughs> furiously uh, replying. So I'll do that in person or I'll do it by email or I'll do fact checking. Um, mm-hmm. I also one of the other primary responsibilities that I have is to manage the Levi Strauss and Company archives uh, here mm-hmm. at our headquarters in San Francisco, which is the largest repository of and most important repository of of Levi's in the world, and of course helps, that's the place where we document the company's history. Uh, and then uh, all of the related work that I do, um, too, too much to, to number right here, but I will tell you that I'm part of the marketing department, mm-hmm. and that might give you another clue uh, mm-hmm. into how, uh, how I, I am used at the company. Mm-hmm. So on your profile on, online, on LinkedIn, I see a reference to archives as a key corporate asset. And I was wondering what exactly um, does, you know, do the archives contain? And there are some things that I can probably guess, imagine, but could you say in a few words, maybe, you know, what are the most numerous or most important or maybe the the weirdest type of materials that that there are? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mentioned already the Einstein jacket. Yes. Uh, products or garments are the largest part of the of the collection. So we have thousands of boxes with multiple uh, items of clothing in them. Uh, so primarily, it's made up of garments, Levi's, mm-hmm. uh, obviously, and then everything that you would expect in an archives uh, from photographs and advertisements to uh, customer letters. And when it comes to quirky, we have. The largest, or one of the largest pieces that we have in the archives is a Levi's branded Jeep, which takes a wow. lot of room to, to, to store. But uh-huh. uh, so a Jeep automobile, the, okay. we also have that from the 19... Is there uh, denim on that Jeep? Denim interior, denim inspired interior. There's, there's a lot of regulations when it comes to cars, so you can't just use right. any, any fabric. But yeah, that's <laughs> one of the quirky pieces. We have a lot of, a lot of items in the archives. Mm-hmm. In what sense is the archive a corporate asset? Well, it is owned by the company, so that's one sense. But it's also, um, it's literally valued. So the right. collection that we have, the, the garment collection is insured. Mm-hmm. Um, it's insured, and uh, it, so it, it has a, a financial value. For us, it's, it's more than the financial value uh, that it has. But just to give you, you know, mm-hmm. in concrete terms, um, 
So when when we have items that we are concerned about, if I travel with them, I want to make sure they're insured in case mm-hmm. in case we lose them because they are an important uh, corporate asset. But uh, it also means something more um, symbolically. It means that it's an important uh, item that is used by the company to help further the company's ends. Right. Maybe that's a short and, way of saying. And it. thank you. No, that's that's kind of a range of responses. I was I was curious about, and I imagine, by the way, that employees cannot just pop into the archive and pick a jacket for Friday night uh, when they go out. No. Right. No. <laughs> no. There's problems. In fact, I've got some gloves hanging out of my my pocket here because we're very careful about how we how we care for our our garments. No, we we welcome our employees to come into the archives. In fact, designers are the the uh, the ones that spend the most time with us here. But uh, we care for the items, but we want them to be used. Right. So we we strike oh. a balance between properly preserving them uh-huh. but making them available. So. Having a brand means so much to a company. And of course, Levi's is such a strong brand and a brand that goes um, so far back in time to the mid-19th century, as you mentioned. Could you talk about your role as a historian in the shaping of the Levi's brand? Well, as the historian, I think of myself more as the interpreter of our history. Mm -hmm. So, And part of that involves fact-checking and accuracy, and we often will say in, in marketing talk that we are an authentic brand. And for me, what that means is that we, we try to tell a story that is, that is accurate and authentic, and, and that hasn't always mm-hmm. happened in our past, which is why one of the mm-hmm. reasons I think it's important to have someone like myself. Let me just give you mm-hmm. one quick example, because that's a little bit Please, esoteric, thanks. but for a very long time, uh, up until the the early '90s, the company uh, the company identified itself as having been founded in 1850. Mm-hmm. Well, when my predecessor came on board and did some research about our 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 founder arriving in San Francisco, it turns out that that it wasn't until 1853 <laughs> that the company was founded. But 1850 was a nice round number. It was also the date that the state of California was created. So it it, it kind of made a nice story, but it wasn't mm-hmm. accurate. Uh, so that mm-hmm. was one of the things that we that we changed. And I can always tell an advertisement that was created before the first historian was hired and after, mm-hmm. <laughs> because mm-hmm. it'll say 1850 or 1853. So that's just one kind of example. We we like to verify uh, that what we're saying is is accurate. So to follow up on this, I have a devil's advocate question because I think okay. a lot of people are wondering about this. You know, I was going to ask them later, but I think it builds up nicely, and I can just throw it out right now. Yeah. You know, I think for a lot of people, history is a search for truth, right? And you identify um, yourself, meaning Levi's, as the authentic. Com- company, authentic brand, but but there are also you know commercial interests, obviously, and that's and that's normal. I was wondering, it, are there moments where maybe there are discussions about which way to go? I, I don't know where these purely very idealistic um, mo- motives clash with with the sense that you know this is not viable. That we need to go another way. You know, maybe you see what I mean. I do. I I think uh, I can answer that in a couple of ways. The first is that. You choose who you want to work with and a company that is going to have the kind of values that you also 
mm-hmm. uh, want to reflect. So I think that that that's a start, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we sure. we all who whoever we're working for are going to are, are going to 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 be a part uh, and represent or a representative of that right. of that uh, institution or company as it right. will as it may be. Uh, Levi's has an incredibly rich history with uh, a very progressive history as well and a lot of values that I myself share. But and for the most part, I haven't encountered any issues that I've had to deal with where that's a concern. Mm-hmm. However, I'll give you one instance of this where we where we are sensitive about it and we we do use our history to make sure that we're telling an accurate story. Mm-hmm. And I, I can relate to this because I've discussed this with my uh, colleagues in, in Germany during World War II who, uh, who had to deal with, with uh, questions of, of uh, employing Jewish uh, Jews and others during, during the war. So mm-hmm. during uh, the early 19th century, uh, there is a history of uh, anti-Chinese sentiment. Mm-hmm. And uh, Levi Strauss and company uh, did succumb to that pressure when customers refused to buy, uh, when there was a, a chance that customers wouldn't buy our products if they were made by Chinese. So there was a period mm-hmm. of time when uh, when uh, the company advertised that that uh, products were made by white labor so mm-hmm. as to, to, to reassure. Yeah. reassure customers. Right. But it's important. Uh, and, and while we tell that story or acknowledge that that happened and uh, that, that that was not a good thing, we mm-hmm. also it's also important to understand the context for that, because this was an era when there was a federal legislation right. um, that made it impossible for a lot of Chinese coming to the company, uh, it coming into the country to have a business. So when we have, when we talk about that, we like to have the um, the full context, and then we also um, uh, need to be able to acknowledge those kinds of things that have happened mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. fortunately, that that's the only one that I, that comes to mind. Thanks. No, that's that's <laughs> great. Interesting. I always like to bring up examples. Yeah. And you know, I like I like what you said about choice, right? It's it's not. I think we're used to thinking about top-down policies in a company, mm-hmm. and us somehow beholden to it. But but it's true that especially for well-known companies, people who choose to work for a company have a sense of what they're about. Yeah, absolutely. They're yeah. Um, yeah. Since you mentioned your colleagues, I'm curious how many. historians are there at Levi's? <laughs> you know, over a hundred countries. Oh, at Levi's. Yeah. I am the one. There is one of me. <laughs> yeah. And you, and you have an empire of 100 countries that you present uh, over. 110. Yeah, I'm responsible for all of those. It is not a it's it can be overwhelming at times and also mm-hmm. challenging at the same time to be the the one that's responsible for that. Now that's not to say that I'm the only one that's handling all things related to uh to heritage and history. Right. But they um we, for instance, we make our collection accessible to employees uh, by digitizing a lot of the collection, photographing it and so mm-hmm. forth. And we have a vendor who helps us with that. I have Laura, who I, I may or may not have mentioned, but she's the archivist here mm-hmm. uh, who also uh, helps. And we sometimes will have contractors or interns in. But yeah, it's mm-hmm. me. <laughs> it's Interesting. me, primarily. Only. Very, I mean... I'm surprised, I have to say, because uh, yeah. it must be a lot to deal with. But yeah. I'm also interested in in the kind of a st- structure of collaboration because mm. we're talking about 110 countries. We're talking about you know 110 contexts, if not more. Mm-hmm. And and there's there's just a lot of work to be done. I think in terms of finding a specific voice for a specific market oh, sure. for a specific audience. 
And yeah. now, Tracy, I have an example that I wanted to give you. Yeah, okay. Because, and I'm excited about it for many, many reasons. <laughs> Levi's, I learned recently, won a Silver Lion uh, for a movie commercial called Fair Exchange. You noted on your LinkedIn profile that it's one of your fa favorites. So I actually went and looked it up. I think it's very interesting. It's a film about a young man in 1982, Soviet Union, in Georgia specifically, who exchanges a cow for a pair of Levi's 501. <laughs> I should know. So I have questions, both as someone who is interested in how this project may be operated to the extent that you can share, but also as someone who works on Soviet and East European history. I just well, couldn't pass it by. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm glad you asked. Yes. So uh, 2023, this year, marks the 150th anniversary of the, the 501, the original blue jean or riveted denim pant. So this is a huge uh, milestone year for us. And I've been busy traveling the world because, uh, as you say, there's a lot of history in other parts of the world that that is... Uh, that's part of the Levi's legacy. Right. So to answer your question about whether uh, you were, well, Patrick, you were asking whether the story actually happened. Is that the first question? That's, that's one of the questions I had, yes. I also okay. had a question if you, you but let's, well, let's start, start with, with this. Yeah, let's, let's start with let's this. Start with that, I can see it happening. I can see it <laughs> happening. Yeah, it, it's true. And here's, here's one of the things. Now I mentioned to you that I love stories. And part of uh, what I do when I travel and e here uh, at the headquarters uh, in San Francisco is I collect stories. We actually have a, um, a collection of them. We call them the Tell Us Your Levi Story. And we have a small museum. People can come in and record their stories. Mm -hmm. Or if they tell me, then I upload them to our system. Uh, and the story that Fair Exchange, that film was based on, was a story told uh, to me by a man named Mindo who shared that it happened, the story happened to his neighbor. And uh -huh. he, he went out. So it was one of the stories that I had in our collection. And um, as part of the celebration for the 150th anniversary of the 501, uh, we had a camp, we launched a campaign in February. And it was called The Greatest Story Ever Worn. And it was all about stories. And we, I worked very closely with our marketing folks, and we also had an agency that we worked with to cull the archives for all of the stories and to synthesize it down to three key stories that we were going to tell as part of the campaign. And uh -huh. Fair Exchange was one of those. I will, uh, I'll make it short because I'm going on about it, um, partly because it, it's, it's so fresh for me. But we launched the uh, that campaign in February at the Grammys. So the, mm -hmm. the commercials were aired on the Grammys uh, okay. for the first time on television, including Fair Exchange. And Mindo had told me the story several years ago, and I'd recorded it. And I tried to get in touch with him before the the advertisement aired, but he, he wasn't responding. About a week after the commercial aired, Mindo emails me and his neighbor <laughs> emails me and say, and they said, we saw the commercial. We know it's us. We are so excited. We are cheering here in Georgia. And uh, they actually sent me the family of the protagonist in the film sent me a photo of him 
and uh-huh. he looks so much like the actor. That was one of the things that they <laughs> loved about him. So it is a case of, of truth inspiring the, um, you know, there were some of the details that weren't exactly accurate, but the exchange uh-huh. and the cow, though, those were the key, Georgia, those were all the key right. parts. <laughs> right. Interesting. Yeah. And it yeah. sounds like you were actually heavily involved in, in this since you, you were Absolutely. the one corresponding with Mindo. Yeah. Do you have a team of consultants who help you maybe figure out if a, a certain a certain if you know like go out to the field and actually figure out if what Bindos is saying is actually tr- mm. true does it circulate around the you know the the village no. or and, <laughs> no and but if, here's here's what what I uh, do I usually will when when stories come to me I usually they're usually coming from the source mm-hmm. so uh, while his uh, the story that he shared happened to the neighbor, it was in most cases I talked to the people who shared their stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, okay. one of the stories that didn't make the cut was a story that was told to me by a man in Australia, who uh, who was wearing a pair of Levi's and his life was saved because he was wearing them. He was <laughs> he was out in the bush. This is this literally happened. He was out in the bush, and a snake bit him uh, uh-huh. on the leather patch on uh-huh. the Levi's leather patch at the back okay. and the venom he could even see the drips of venom it stopped the uh the venom from touching him from uh-huh. from hitting his skin uh-huh. and uh-huh. he went back uh and he didn't know what had happened to him turned around it was the snake but um so he the actual source uh, was the one that told me the story and so typically uh-huh. the people uh whose stories i record in the archives are the are the ones who experienced whatever right. happened to them in their levi's right yeah. but you said the story didn't make right it didn't make the cut. We only had three. There are oh, yeah. hundreds, okay. hundreds of stories. We, yeah. So we didn't, we didn't do that one, but it's a great story. Okay. I have okay. a picture. It sounds like a good story. Yeah. That's a cool <laughs> yeah. one. Uh-huh. Um, I was very uh, gratified to uh, hear the music behind that commercial fair exchange. I was, I was surprised a little bit to see that there was a Polish, a new wave band uh, um, <laughs> called Crisis, which means a crisis. Uh-huh. Which of course makes sense because 1982 was a big crisis in that uh, neck of the yeah. woods. So let me play a clip from this song. I started to think about it, the more I came to appreciate the layered subtleties of that commercial, actually, that, pro- you know, probably somebody who maybe didn't grow up in Poland or in Georgia or doesn't study it professionally might not even get, but it but it works on so many levels. So 
I thought I'd ask you, what is the what is the structure of building this thing? Uh, you know, you, somebody must have reached out to look for. Oh, yeah. How do you even look for music <laughs> yeah. that fits so perfectly? Thank you. Um, thank you for asking, and I appreciate your perspective. Uh, someone who got it immediate, <laughs> immediately. So we worked with an agency to produce that film, Droga Five. And they have a, uh, a, a team that handles music uh, and the, the background music for, for the films. They spent time searching for the perfect song that would immediately put someone into the era and, mm-hmm. into, the, and into the feel of what the yeah. film represents, which is yeah. about someone who, uh, even the lyrics, um, I had to get the tr- them translated, but even the lyrics match what was happening. This yeah. sense of being fed up and uh, wanting something more and yeah. dreaming and, and um, having a product that you, uh, that you want so much um, and are willing to <sighs> to sacrifice for it to right. as a way of self-expression so that's yeah. those are all the yeah. elements that 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 story yeah. kind of spoke to and that's and that's what i, I found that worked so brilliantly <laughs> and and i have to say i think you can go two ways you can either look at it critically and say well you know all these people are exchanging communism for levi's or communism for capitalism you know or you can or you can see it the way actually it was also it's just a lot of people wanted really wanted levi's and i can tell that they did because i remember when i started to come to the u.s in the early 90s friends asked me for levi's to bring over to poland so so it was a it was a fact and so it's kind of interesting how it works on a philosophical level also yeah they they were a coveted item uh because they were banned especially for young people that's obviously what they want and and what they represented yeah, I, there's a great photograph in the archives of young people sitting atop the Berlin Wall when it fell in 1989, and they're wearing blue jeans. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's mm-hmm. by chance, and it's also very symbolic. Right. <laughs> That's true. So I understand that many of your contributions draw on your understanding on how the brand evolved over time, right? As a, These are contributions of an historian. But I wonder also, are you ever involved or maybe tempted to get involved? in discussions about the company's business strategy? Are you ever asked this as somebody who has insights into the past Mm -hmm. to kind of help extrapolate based on what may have worked or what may may not have worked in the past? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't want to give myself too much credit for for company strategy as the historian, (laughs) but but I, I will say that we are serious, and I have been asked several times when we're looking at an issue that's of important to us. And maybe I'll just give you an, an example. Thank uh, you. Recently, and this is true, I think, for most businesses uh, out there, the idea of, um, of diversity, equity, and inclusion has, has become um, mm-hmm. important, or at least more, more talked about. Mm-hmm. And it's an important value to our company as well. And when we were looking into how we could um, make that more meaningful at Levi Strauss and company, they wanted, we wanted a a historical perspective on where the company had been. Uh So that's the kind of a project I might uh, provide some insight into. Well, here's, here's what we, we've done Uh, in the forties. We hired white and black sewing machine operators. We did mm-hmm. not segregate. They sat side by side. This is years before civil rights legislation. So those are, those are the kinds uh-huh. of things that, that I could share to give some context uh-huh. for making decisions about, about the future. And do you, do you know by any chance why Levi's was such an outlier in that 
um, in that sense? Uh, well, it, it goes a lot to the leadership. Um, uh-huh. It's a very progressive company. The the leaders of the company who were descendants of Levi himself, Jewish, a lot of their mm-hmm. Jewish ideals, they they brought into fruition in, in uh, they saw it come to life in, in the company, this mm-hmm. uh, concern for people and treating treating them with, with respect mm-hmm. and knowing what had happened uh, and what was happening during the war. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Levi Strauss and company was known for, for instance, for hiring a lot of refugees at the factories uh, who had fled Europe. And, and that's all to say it was all part of the atmosphere um, that allowed the company and a lot of the, or the early leaders to set up policies that were really in stark contrast to what was happening in, in other parts of the U.S. Speaking of leadership, I believe that um, you've mentioned at some point to me that the person who hired the first historian was actually the last CEO who was also the de- descendant of, of Levi. Yes, that's right. So Bob Haas is the great, great grand nephew, the great, great grand nephew of Levi Strauss. So uh-huh. you should know that Levi Strauss did not have any children, but he had four nephews who took over the business okay. when he passed away. And uh, Bob Haas was... Uh, the last fans, the last family member to serve. He's still around. He, he comes in, and mm-hmm. I saw him not not long ago. He was here at, at the headquarters yesterday. So he hired the first historian, my predecessor, in 1989, and founded the archives. Mm-hmm. Uh, largely, mm-hmm. I'm am sure. Well, he, he he's told me uh, interested in the the legacy and and mm-hmm. history of his family, but mm-hmm. also recognized uh, the impact of Levi Strauss and company on the American West, mm-hmm. on fashion history, um, mm-hmm. it, representing a lot of globe, uh, cultural and important parts of, of cultural history that can only be told through clothing and people's stories. So a lot right. of the materials or the garments that we have in the archives were worn by people whose stories we chronicle. Uh, people mm-hmm. like those behind the Iron Curtain during the Cold War mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. who desperately wanted to, to have the freedom to wear blue jeans if they wanted to, or people, uh, we have a pair of blue jeans uh, that were worn by a man who literally crawled across the United States border. Um, he fled Guatemala and came to the United States, eventually becoming a citizen. But those are the kinds of stories that our collection Sure, chronicles. Sure. And Bob understood the relevance of that. So we have not only uh, did he set up the archives, but we have uh, close ties with the University of California at Berkeley mm-hmm. um, to, yes. Always interesting to wonder, you know, what what's, what, what inspires somebody at this specific point in time to, 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 to think we need an historian, um, you know, but it's usually, prob- as you said, boils down to to a vision and a sense of urgency and and desire to create a legacy um, that maybe some of the predecessors didn't have. I was just going to say I think that's absolutely true at the uh, inception of of a of, of getting hiring someone and set setting up an archives, but there's the ongoing challenge of making it relevant and being in. Uh, interwoven in the business enough so that they see your value and you're not mm-hmm. on the chopping block for right. uh, for for uh, heading out the door because they don't see a need to to uh, spend resources to have resource devoted to it. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. 
I'm very curious, and forgive me for coming back to this question, but if Bob Haas wanted to walk in and put on the Einstein jacket <laughs> and go on, out on town, could he do it or not? Now, you're putting me on the spot, but Bob's <laughs> a very important person. Luckily, the Einstein jacket is behind the plexiglass. It would be difficult. But it's I'll tell sick. you this. I'll tell you this, Patrick. So uh, Bob Haas is, uh, aside from myself, uh, and uh, Laura, our archivist here, and our CEO, he is the only other person that has access to our archives. So he, he okay. we have security and he can get in. So that's okay. how important right. he is. Let's I, just say that. Okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll take this one as an answer. Thank you. So you replaced someone, I think, coming to, yes. uh, to the company. I just trying to connect the dots online. I think it may have been historian Lynn Downey, possibly. Yeah, yep. Lynn was okay. the only. Yeah, she was the first, the original. <laughs> and so the reason why I'm asking, and I looked up her work also, um, but what I'm curious about is something more general. Uh, do corporate historians have their own styles, profiles? Can they kind of shape research agenda or you know interpretive work, um, which you mentioned you've been doing? Absolutely. And I think it's important that whoever is in the role that they're in, that they be true to their, themselves. They need to be, they need to l reflect their own personalities and do what's in, in, what, what is natural for them. Mm -hmm. So uh, Lynn, and, Lynn, had, uh, Lynn was terrific, by the way. We were professional mm -hmm. colleagues. And mm -hmm. when she retired, I then applied for the position. But Lynn was dynamic. She was also a storyteller. Uh, and and she uh, she helped create the archives and make it what it is today. We're very different in our styles. Uh, one of the things that I brought to the archives that she did not have a whole lot of experience in, and we each have our, our strengths, is I brought the archives into the 21st century. Uh, mm -hmm. We digitized the collection. Yeah. We, we photographed uh, all of the the garments that are, are vintage that are on site and some mm -hmm. of that we have some off site as well. We made them accessible mm -hmm. uh, in a way they hadn't been before. So there are whatever the uh, the person in that role, they bring their own their, their own skills, their own personality, their own mm -hmm. values. What, what would you say was the most um, interesting or maybe challenging things that you had to learn on job? Because obviously you have to learn every day. <laughs> this mm -hmm. is kind of a a living living challenge sounds like because the, yes. the brand is alive and it's and it's so rich and it's textured. Um, so what 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 can you maybe say yeah. about the learning process? Let me uh, say first, I'm still learning. There's a, <laughs> there's always learning mm -hmm. to be done. Right. Uh, but I I will tell you this, and this might give you some some sense of it. I was hired in June. I remember because it happened to be on my wedding anniversary. I was hired in June, and in August I had my first media appearance and I had to be prepared. <laughs> I had like, uh, what that three month period. Yeah. Just over three months to have a basic understanding of the company history so that mm -hmm. I could answer mm -hmm. in a relatively confident way, uh, questions that I expected that would be posed to me. I, it's always a process of learning and you know, the, the, the longer someone has been here, the, the more they know. So, uh, mm -hmm. it, I mean, it's just part of, as you well know, uh, the, the experience, experience learned over time. So somebody coming in and, and fresh, I certainly didn't start with, with all the great knowledge that Lynn had when I began. I've had to accumulate and learn that over time. But mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it was just kind of jump in, figure mm -hmm. it out. <laughs> What's the hardest part, actually, about answering media inquiries um, as, as part of your 
job. Do you do you get hard mm. questions or oh, or is sure. it mem mem memorizing <laughs> the details that somebody got really stuck on, but you may not not have a, you know possibly because there's a lot to learn, right? Yeah, well, I, that, there's certainly an an, an art to it. Uh, one, the the questions I remember in August, it was like, oh boy, can I? Do I know the answer? <laughs> That's first, do I know the answer? <laughs> Am I going to be able to 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 uh, to comment as someone who who knows? Um, Am I going to be able to, to share um, to share what I know is important or passionate or or valuable about the company in an interesting and inspiring way? Mm -hmm. Uh, so all those those all come into play. Am I going to be able to to answer fairly a tough question, but also understanding the um, the business and what the business concerns are? I, I mentioned earlier right. um, an example of that, but those are all things that come into play. It it does take practice. It does take understanding your subject. Mm -hmm. So I have a couple of concluding questions, if I if I may. Thank you. One is, um, you know, I was wondering, is there anything? That you'd like to do in your present role that you haven't done yet, or that you anticipate mm -hmm. that might be a possibility of of taking on. Sure, and of course, I'm I'm stuck here thinking exactly what 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 that is at the moment. But <laughs> here's what I will tell you: most a lot of the um, the things that I have have done, I didn't expect to be doing, and that's what's great about it. I love uh -huh. all the surprises, right. and I haven't been afraid to say yes to something, even though I, ha I haven't done it before or might not know exactly the best way to approach it. I, I think that that being open to new things is part of what I love doing. I think I'd love to to finish, if I had the time, a book. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask <laughs> uh, about that next, yes, actually. Yes, yeah. that would be, uh, I think there's there's just so uh, there's so much that I do. It's it's hard to find the time. In fact, it's funny because Lynn was only my predecessor, the historian before me, was only able to write her first uh, a book, her biography of Levi Strauss once she'd retired <laughs> because mm -hmm. she, yeah. she was so busy. I think it's but I'd like the case. To, yeah, I mean, I'd I'd love to have the time uh, to do that, but what book? Not right may, now. may I ask if it's yeah, it's and do I have it here? It's Levi Strauss. It's a biography. Oh, uh, but Levi what Strauss. Book? The Man Who Gave Blue Jeans to the World. Oh, I, I was asking actually about what book you were oh, thinking about finishing. Oh, what book I would like yeah. to, to. Sorry, I thought you meant what she had written. I would like to. So I love uh, Western American history, and I've loved and I've learned a lot about fashion, something that would connect in those ways and to make it really personal with all the stories. Uh -huh. uh, you know, it would be great to be able to tell a, a global story of Levi Strauss through the blue jeans and the uh -huh. people who wore them. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just kind of throwing out some ideas, but yeah. You have the stories there already, it sounds <laughs> yeah. like. Yeah. yeah. And uh, my last question is, what do you think history departments can possibly do to prepare their graduates for careers in the private sector, mm. particularly in corporate history? Yeah, I think there's there's a few things. Um, and thank you for asking that. I I think public speaking skills are really important. Mm -hmm. And and something we don't always think of. There's they're super important, and and that would be one. I would also say that it's important to to be able to to know and adapt to whatever situation you're in. And mm -hmm. for a business, students should know how to write for a business. They mm -hmm. need to be concise. They mm -hmm. need to think about bullets, executive mm -hmm. summaries. That's not to say that you shouldn't have your your important research and the backup documents, but mm -hmm. you are 
not going to have an executive read a 30-page thesis. Mm-hmm. It's good to have that and to, to prove that you have all that information, but they might, you know, they might read the, the executive one-page summary. So being able to write uh, in a way that's digestible in the corporate sector and understanding how you can adapt those skills that you have, but in a way that's going to be relevant to the business. That's Close great advice. <laughs> and being able to adopt to your audiences, basically, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Patrick. Um, <laughs> Tracy, uh, thank you. Uh, it's It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Pleasure is I... all mine. <laughs> this was Chronolab, a podcast about the practical uses of history. Thanks for listening. For more upcoming conversations about the value of historical thinking in business, tech, and beyond, check out the podcast website at www.chronolab.buzzsprout.com. On the website, you also find contact information and social media links. Let me know what you think about the show and how I could make it more useful to you. Also, if you use historical expertise, methods, or skills to advance your professional goals and make an impact outside academia, I'd love to hear from you. I'm the host, Patrick Babiratsky. I hope you'll join me next month.